about Mr. Wilson's ball? Joe allowed that it would be bad judgment to try to sell the ball at the clubhouse when Mr. Wilson was about to show up and offered us a dime for it. The world economy seemed turned on its head. A nickel for a fairly large suckerfish and a whole dime for a measly little ball? We'll take it. That was Ed Herbstman reading a few lines from A Dissertation on Golf by Eric Koth. You'll hear more in a moment. But first, you're listening to Yesteryear, Stories from Home, a series that features firsthand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson, just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our show. And welcome spring. Kids have returned to the ball fields and families are down by the riverside to picnic or ponder. New shoots of grass push up all around us as we breathe a collective sigh of relief. Winter is behind us, and not just any winter. This episode of Yesteryear features a section from Eric Koth's memoir, A Dissertation on Golf. Koth reflects upon the summer of 1934, when he was nine, and willing to get a little scrappy in the name of a dollar. When the bait fish he and his friends sell to the crabbers stop biting, the boys come upon another money-making scheme at St. Andrew's Golf Club in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York. Here to offer context is Bruce Clark, St. Andrew's historian and member since 1968. Bruce? Thank you, Melanie. We are in the village of Hastings-on-Hudson in the summer of 1934. FDR is the president, and the New Deal is promised. But the Depression still hangs over the country, and Hastings is no exception. Eric Koth is nine years old, living in a tenement on Warburton Avenue, backing up to the Croton Aqueduct. Eric and his two friends, Jake and Julius, have a fixed goal over the hot summer. Ice cream at Mr. Brunig's shop. But how to pay for it? Their thoughts in this respect turn to the St. Andrews Golf Club, where youngsters could caddy for golfers. According to board minutes from the time, the pay was a dollar for 18 holes, 75 cents for 9 holes, 50 cents an hour for tracking down practice balls, and an extra 25 cents for any service after 7 p.m. Because the caddies generally were youngsters aged 12 to 15, they didn't lug the 16 to 20-something clubs Bobby Jones once had in his bag. St. Andrews had limited the number of clubs to a bag to 14, the same limit ordered by the USGA in 1938 and still in force today. Eric and his mates were only nine years old, too young to be caddies but they knew golf balls were worth something. Why, a new Wilson ball cost 50 cents, and even a remade ball could fetch a quarter. And St. Andrews was accessible. No throughway then separated Mount Hope from St. Andrews, so the boys could travel eastward from Hastings and find balls lost in the woods, or perhaps sitting in a fairway over a hill and out of view from the golfers. Koth takes liberties with a few facts, St. Andrews was not a six-hole course. It became an 18-hole course in 1897. You will see that he has inventive names for the sand traps and for the golfers themselves. And there always was a clubhouse, a 19th hole, not a 7th hole, where players could settle and absorb a story like this one. Thanks, Bruce. And now, Ed Herbstman reads A Dissertation on Golf by Eric Koth. 
The story begins in the summer of 1934, in the village of Hastings-upon-the-Hudson, in the backyard of a tenement building on the southern end of Warburton Avenue. The backyard of this place was the Croton Aqueduct. There, on a Sunday morning, I sat with my two other nine-year-old buddies, Jake and Julius, contemplating the ubiquitous problem of the times, where to get some money. I had plenty of dough, but it was inaccessible. Every Saturday, I washed the tables on the porch of Angelo's restaurant for the enormous sum of 50 cents, which I always converted into two quarters, but those were promptly deposited by my parents into my locked cash register bank. So you see, Jake, Julius, and I were all in the same moneyless boat. The great need was 15 cents, with which we could buy three very large cones of homemade ice cream from Mr. Brunning. We three had, on a few occasions, managed to accumulate 15 cents. And although this had been a pleasant task, it was also a week-long project. You see, we had between us a piece of capital equipment, a fish hook. With this equipment, we would go on an adventure. Our moms were advised that we were going on a hike and we would need sustenance the following day. Almost invariably, each of us would show up the next morning with a sandwich and an apple, ready and eager to go. Our destination was the bridge crossing the Sawmill River, just south of the Mount Hope Railroad Station, where, with some luck, we could expect a wave from the engineer of the steam locomotive. The route was always the same, not the shortest, but the only way known to us. We immediately climbed the stone wall of the aqueduct behind our homes and headed northward until we reached the quarry. No self-respecting youngster would skirt around this landscape. It was mandatory to get into the sandstone pit and find a suitable egress by scaling a steep cliff onto the Draper property. From there, it was a short walk to Olinda Avenue passing Doc Jenkins, the horse doctor, and Dr. Johnson's place. From there, we walked the long track on Farragut Parkway, but it was only a two-lane road back then. Upon reaching Ravensdale Road, it was down to the Sawmill River Parkway. Crossing was easy, since only one car appeared every ten minutes or so, but they were fast, some going as much as 40 miles per hour. Swoosh! The wooden bridge was just ahead, and we were in luck this day. There were a couple of sucker fish lazing about in the sun and shadow of the bridge below. The first one was hooked almost immediately amid great whoops of joy and expectations for the future of the morning, but disappointment soon set in. Try as we might, those fish must have been spooked by losing one of their comrades. Although we had no timepiece, it felt as if we spent hours at this task of fishing. So we went for a quick skinny dip and moved on to our next step in this commercial enterprise. We knew the value of these fish. They were never eaten by people, but crabs seemed to thrive on them. Now hopeful, we retraced our tracks down into the village and down to the Hudson River, north of the Anaconda factory, expecting to find some crabbers running out of bait. Lady Luck was with us this time. There were several crabbers along the rocky banks. One cannot imagine our relief at the site, even though a sail was not imminent. On several previous expeditions, we found ourselves without a single prospect, only to have to cast the dead fish into the river. It was now negotiation time. A business conference was held between us. Agreement was immediate. We would never get 15 cents for the fish. But perhaps Mr. Brunning would give us three half-full small ice cream cones for a dime. We went all along the line of crabbers, even offering half a fish for a nickel. But we had to settle for a nickel for the whole thing. Never enough for an ice cream for all of us. 
So it was back home via the quarry. All the way home, we pondered our misfortune. Our next business trip was eminently more successful. We bagged three and easily got 15 cents this time. We arrived at Brunning smiling and asked Mr. Brunning for three cones with a little extra in each one for the spare nickel. He obliged, and we sat at the counter in those high wire chairs like big shots, just as we thought nothing could be better. Two knockouts, high school girls, came in and tried to make conversation with us. But all three of us were just too bashful. I'm sure we turned a shade of red. Boys of nine began to admire the lovely roundness of the opposite sex even before knowing why. When these two expressed their desires to Mr. Brunning, we knew instantly that they hailed from up on Mortgage Hill. They had banana splits with three big scoops of different colored ice cream on each one. We departed giggling with some of the ice cream still in the bottoms of our sugar cones and walked the last mile home. Today's adventure required a seven-mile walk. The topic of discussion the entire way home was about making 15 cents a less arduous way. We had a classmate whose name was Armando. He had a brother a few years older who went off to a job every morning and returned some days flush with money. Armando arranged for us to have an interview with him on the steps of the back porches of our houses. Joe was quite a big shot, but he let us in on a secret. He was a caddy. There were three of us. We could surely carry three bags around the six-hole course at St. Andrews. Joe said that it would be impossible for those rich guys to engage squirts as young as we were, but allowed that a small amount of money could be had by finding golf balls in the woods along those grassy stretches called fairways and selling them to the players as they returned to the clubhouse. We would have to be discreet and stay out of sight and make our way to the clubhouse through the woods unnoticed. How much would these guys pay for one of those lost balls? The answer was a nickel. This certainly seemed like a better proposition than snarling suckerfish and walking the bounty all the way down to the Hudson where we may or may not find a buyer, but where is this St. Andrew's golf place? Joe replied that it wasn't a golf place. It was a golf course. It was located atop the hill, just beyond the Mount Hope Cemetery. At the upper end of the cemetery, we came upon a wooded area and broke out onto a scene just as Joe had described. This was a golf course. We had every intention of running right into the grass when we heard some men talking on their way up a dirt roadway alongside the green grass. We retreated into the woods and watched and listened as four strangely clad men mingled around a flat section of very nice grass. The caddies, two of them, each carried two bags loaded with clubs for the men who looked like circus clowns. Instead of long pants or shorts, they all had on plaid knickers of different colors. Their socks were long, their shoes were white, and all had on sweaters without sleeves. What use are sweaters without sleeves? But this is summer, and it was hot enough to go shirtless. If that wasn't enough, each had on a cap with a brim that matched the pattern of their knickerbockers. They removed them occasionally to wipe their brows, then immediately replaced them on their sweaty heads. We had seen saner people at the Hastings Hillside Hospital, a crazy house. The first of these clowns walked up to a spot on the nice lawn and poked a small stick into the ground and then put a golf ball atop of it. 
Then one of the caddies struggling with those two bags dragged his load to the man and faced the top of one of the bags full of clubs toward him. The golfer who picked a club from the caddy's bag kept looking down at the ball, then out into the distance, and down at the ball again. He kept up this procedure for what seemed to us crouching lads an interminable time. Finally, squish, he clobbered that ball, a real good one. The other three engaged themselves in similar activities. Then they all wandered down the grassy slope. We did not follow them, but ran back into the woods and down the hill. In the wooded area along the greens, there was a swiftly running brook. Though our teacher told us never to drink from a brook, since there may be cows upstream, since we had seen no cows, we all took a big schluck of the brook. Joe had not mentioned that there was some sort of construction work going on at St. Andrews. Someone had dug several large pits in the grass and filled them with sand. As we peered out from behind the dense shrubbery, we could see three out of the four balls the men drove in this direction. One was on a nice flat green spot with a flag stuck in the middle. The other was a bit further behind in one of these construction sites. And the third was still farther back in the tall grass. The guy that had hit his ball on the nice flat green grass went first. He hit the ball slowly about a dozen times each time seeming to become more distraught. Finally, it disappeared into the ground near the flag. The man in the construction site went next. Swoosh! He whacked one heck of a shot. The sand flew a mile high, but the ball moved only an inch or two deeper into the construction site. When he saw that the ball was still there, he yelled out the name of the construction site, a name unfamiliar to us. Son of a bitch, he yelped as loud as anyone had ever heard. That fourth guy was a real danger to us. His ball was nowhere to be found, and he just kept wandering along the edge of the woods, casually looking for his ball. He wandered only a few feet from us, but we wondered why he was looking here. We all noticed his ball curved towards the woods and hit a tree halfway up the hill. We all had the urge to help him, but we remained incognito. He finally took another ball out of his knickerbockers and placed it alongside the woods and whacked it towards the flag. To the dismay of his fellow players, the ball disappeared below the flag on his second shot. The overcast was becoming darker and darker. It was now time to run back up the hill through the woods to find the last ball. We looked diligently for what seemed like an interminable time without success. Jake shouted for us to come up the hill a bit further and look around near a huge maple tree. The ball was found in tall grass at the edge of the woods. Our first inclination was to run down to that clubhouse and fetch our money, but a problem immediately presented itself. The ball belonged to Mr. Wilson. His name was printed on it. Our immediate decision was reached. We would go back into the town to Armando's house and discuss all the peculiarities of our day's outing with his brother. Joe was at home, and he was more than willing to educate us on the game and the process of recycling golf balls for cash. First of all, he told us, sons of bitches are referred to as sand traps, and they were put there deliberately to antagonize the golfers. It seemed to us very odd indeed that a game which is supposed to be fun should be constructed to aggravate a player, 
It seemed to us that this was analogous to putting telephone poles on a basketball court or cutting holes in the ice at Sugar Pond for a hockey game. But what about Mr. Wilson's ball? Joe allowed that it would be bad judgment to try to sell the ball at the clubhouse when Mr. Wilson was about to show up and offered us a dime for it. The world economy seemed turned on its head. A nickel for a fairly large suckerfish and a whole dime for a measly little ball? We'll take it. It was raining the next morning, and the unanimous decision was to wait for a really hot day to take the trip to Brunning's Ice Cream Parlor. We sat on the narrow porch of one of the tenements and reflected upon the game of golf. As all three of us recalled having seen men occasionally hit white rocks with a stick over the deep quarry pit, it was only now that we realized they must have been golf balls and that these balls would end up under varying depths of water, depending on the season and the most recent rainfall. From the top of the quarry, the pit water appeared black and ominous, but once down below, it was as clear as crystal. No matter how windy it was above, below it was always dead calm, and the surface of the water was like a mirror. We three were elated. There were numerous golf balls at the bottom of this clear dark sea, but how would we retrieve them? We came to the idea of tying a couple of rocks to the bottom of some chicken wire and dragging it over the balls lying near the edge of the water. We had half a dozen balls in no time at all. Warmth and sunshine had displaced the morning drizzle, and we stashed away those golf balls and headed home for our money, and off we went to Brunnings. A few days later, we were off to St. Andrews to peddle our newfound gains. Most of the golfers just had an amused smile as we tried to sell our balls, but one of those golfers did seem somewhat interested. He gave us a quarter for all six with the thought that they were good enough to whack over the quarry. Wow, a whole quarter. Our next and last trip to St. Andrews was discouraging. We had only found one ball this day. As a group of three players was atop the hill getting ready to play, we lay hidden behind the brush as the first man had a good one, wacko. It landed in the grass, just at the edge of the brush where we were hiding. The other players had their balls more nearly to the center of the grass. As they came down toward their balls, their heads disappeared for a moment as they walked into a depression on the course. This was our opportunity. In an instant, we snatched the nearby ball and disappeared and headed down to the seventh hole, where there was a saloon. Because we kicked all the leaves on the way down in a futile effort to acquire more balls, we arrived at the same time as our golfing party. Although the man who lost his ball was not Mr. Wilson, he must have borrowed one of his balls. When we three legitimate businessmen offered our balls for sale at the bar, Mr. Wilson's friend became furious. His remarks were somewhat like, Why, you miserable little sand traps! You little sand traps picked up my ball! Another man grabbed us and shoved us outside the door. He handed us a quarter and said that if we ever returned, that madman in there would kill us. We departed hastily and happily with our quarter. School was to begin next Tuesday, and we couldn't possibly get back anyway. We went back home and got our Mondo and went to Brunnings for ice cream. I never returned to St. Andrews until decades later to let my toddler daughter, Lisa, go down the big snow-covered hill on a saucer, an event that my daddy will never forget, nor let me forget. We kids had neither bicycles nor sleds, but we had one hell of a lot that most kids today are missing. 
You just listened to A Dissertation on Golf, read by Ed Herpsman. Yesteryear, Stories from Home, is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound design by Josh Govier and featuring archives from the Hastings Historical Society. From all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home.